Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. These stories are tales that have once been on the channel and have been removed by myself for one reason or another. I feel it's time to give them a second life. Welcome to the archives. I don't feel like I'm a nosy person. No more nosy than the next guy. I just have what my ma would call an unhealthy amount of curiosity. I was the kid who climbed to the top of the big oak in the backyard just to see what was in the crow's nest. I was the kid who dug a hole in the backyard so deep that I hit groundwater because I was convinced there was a cave under our house and I just wanted to see it. My folks aren't dirt poor, but they're pretty close. They're part of that missing middle of America. The people who work 40 hours a week until they die, with no savings to speak of. I got my first job at a horse stable when I was 14. It didn't last very long. I knew I needed to get a job because I knew we needed the money. So, I bounced around for the next few years, washing dishes, waiting tables, till I graduated high school. Pop was really tough on me about college. He never went, actually nobody in his family had. So there were a few fights about where I would go after school. It was a huge shock to me when, just after graduation, he drove me down to the uni. He'd been classmates with the dean and they'd come up with the arrangement where I'd get a full scholarship provided I made good grades and worked for the university. I never felt like a scholar. In high school, I kept my head down and did enough to get by, pulling off B's and a few C's. I wasn't interested in learning, because learning wasn't interesting. Uni was different, though. I took mainly core classes, math, English, history, science, but they were fascinating. For one thing, nobody cared if I showed up or not. It was entirely up to me to succeed. So I did. In exchange for my education, I worked security and did some light maintenance duties. Maintenance was a no-brainer. I've always been handy and most of the fix-it jobs were the type that could be solved with a liberal application of WD-40 or elbow grease or both. Security, now, <laughs> that was a different story. Security gave me superpowers. You see, the job itself was pretty easy. I got a uniform, a badge, a flashlight, and Ma gave me some keychain mace for my birthday. 
No, I didn't get a gun. They weren't allowed on campus anyway. I worked mostly nights and weekends and doubles during long holiday breaks. I was to walk around the full campus twice in a night, checking the labs, computer center, and library. The rest of my time was pretty much my own. There were two other guards, Jake and Al, but they worked different shifts from me. We had overlap nights on Wednesday nights where we'd get together for about an hour to discuss any major events or changes. There might have been some beer at those meetings, but I'm underage and you know what, you can't prove anything. Jake worked mostly day shift and Al worked swings and some overnights during the week. Jake was a younger guy, training to be on the local police force, so he took his job pretty seriously. On the other hand, I'm pretty sure Al mostly slept during his shifts. Al was two years older than Dirt, so he deserved his rest. Remember that bit I just said about superpowers? Yeah, my first night on the job, Al gave me a huge keychain with about a thousand keys on it. It weighed nearly five pounds and was secured to my belt with a heavy-duty metal chain. Don't lose that keychain, kid, Al said. You got keys to the kingdom right there. Any door that don't open, you don't want to go in it. My work hobby. The thing that kept me awake on those long, cold winter break nights was exploring. I made it a point every night to open some door that I've never opened before. I started in the news section where the library and computer center were, opening each room, each closet, making a map in my head of where everything was. Some nights, I might explore two or three rooms. Some nights, I might not have time for anything more than an odd, out-of-the-way broom closet. The uni is actually a pretty large campus. For having a full student body of only 12 or 1300, it was built as a Methodist college in 1896 and became state-owned in the 30s. There were three main sections. The old school housed the administration offices and a few unlucky classrooms, unlucky due to the lack of central heat and air, and the three-story building had no elevators. The labs were a Brutalist horror of poured concrete slabs and tiny windows, built back in the 70s when buildings that looked like Soviet radiators were in style. The new library was steadily losing its new, built in the late 90s boom, and made in that unique red brick and glass style like everything else during those years. When I think back to those early days, those days before, I think how stupid I was, how naive. I should have thought about winter. I should have thought about the solstice. By December of my sophomore year of college, I had cleared every room in the new library. I had opened every door, checked every closet, and had a good mental map of the whole building. It was ultimately pretty unimpressive. 
I found no buried treasure, no secret stash of missing computer supplies cached in a forgotten closet. I did find a small, sweaty stack of bad porno mags in a supply closet in the basement level. Wicked, wicked cowgirls. Well, you know, who was I to judge? December is a slow time for the uni. After the mad rush of finals, the campus was suddenly deserted. The remaining few staff seemed lost. The building stood silent and dark in the thin winter breezes. We had a steady series of snowstorms, but none bad enough to close the campus. I made sure the sidewalks were clear and the entryways salted and otherwise tried to stay indoors. Besides, I had the old school to explore. The main old building, Downing Hall, was a four-story V-shaped building. It had no elevators, tiny stairwells, and was only exempted from ADA compliance due to its historical importance. It had no air conditioning, save for sporadic window mount units that were only permitted to be installed on the rear of the building so as not to spoil the building's historic charm. The building's heat came from a massive ancient boiler in the basement. As far as I knew, Al was the only person who knew anything about the boiler, and he must have kept it in good shape because I never heard of any complaints about it. I spent the second week after finals week poking through the top floors of Downing Hall, I didn't have a lot of time for exploring every night, as the snow gave me more than usual upkeep chores, but I made steady progress. I discovered a small room in the attic on the left wing that must have been an old dean's office, complete with a beautiful antique desk and wardrobe. I checked both, thinking I might find something historic to give to the dean. But the wardrobe was empty, save for a moth-eaten wool scarf, and the desk's contents were limited to a few old newspapers and some tax forms from the 1950s. A level below, on the building's fourth floor, I found two dozen small, empty classrooms. In my handyman mindset, I checked the windows for loose glass panes and for water or rodent damage. I fully expected to see rat droppings or at least some insect damage, but I found none. The second and third floors were much the same, except the rooms on the rear of the building were air-conditioned and thus actively used for classes when school was in session. The main floor was administration and included the dean's office. I thought it wise not to snoop around in my boss's office or in payroll, so I skipped a lot of these rooms. I made my way to the stairwell to the basement, used my superhero keychain, opened the heavy door, and went down. The basement of Downing Hall was different from that of the new library. For one thing, it was a lot more cramped the hallway was narrow, and the ceiling was low, with doorways leading off at regular intervals. I checked every room, flipping the old two-button switches to on, using my flashlight on the dark corners. 
I had carried a few packs of spare light bulbs, you know, the fancy new CFC bulbs, in my satchel, thinking to replace any that had burnt out, and save the environment while I was at it. The little rooms mostly contained junk. Spare desks, filing cabinets full of 40 and 50 year old papers, old holiday decorations and so forth. It was lit by naked hanging bulbs. Now I'm not an imaginative kind of guy. I guess I'm pretty smart. I'd made straight A's in my college courses. It never occurred to me to be scared. So I didn't think, hey, I'm alone in a creepy old basement. This was my place, my job, my hobby, and it all seemed so normal. By the night of the 20th of December, I had made my way to the boiler room. The furnace was a massive monstrosity of iron and rivets, pipes and gauges. It was hellishly hot in that room and equally loud. It was, however, neat and very clean. Al kept it that way because he said, a clean boiler lets you get more shut-eye. The furnace had been converted from coal to gas at some point, but the soot had stained the walls of the room, and the old coal chute still opened in one of the corners. I had no intention of giving the boiler room more than a glance. I'd been there dozens of times, and there was nothing to see, just a workbench and the furnace itself. When I noticed... A small door to the back and left behind the furnace. Huh, that's weird, I thought to myself. I'd never seen that door before. But then again, I'd never stood in that particular spot beside the workbench, and I had never really looked. The door was smaller than a normal door, maybe five feet tall painted in the same non-colored drab gray-brown of the walls, and was made of metal, just like the other doors in the basement. I went over to the door and touched the handle. I think the body knows something when things are wrong. Have you ever had that feeling like you're being watched? When you know you're totally alone, and nobody can see you, but you feel eyes on you? Have you ever gone left instead of right because you had a feeling that you just shouldn't go to the right today? It didn't work that way for me. When I touched that doorknob, nothing felt any different. My head didn't hurt, my neck hairs didn't stand up, and I didn't hear an inner voice saying, don't do it. The doorknob turned. But the door wouldn't open. I looked more closely and saw a small keyhole. I checked my magic keychain and found three possible matches. Struck out on the first two. And the third worked, of course. The hinges squealed like they hadn't been used in a long time. My handyman instincts noted it. WD-40, I mumbled. I hauled open the door and stepped through, into another small, cramped hallway. The light switch worked, and the single bulb blew with a crack. Damn it, 
My hackles did raise then. I flicked on my flashlight and quickly swapped out the old hallway bulb with the new one. I looked around and saw this hallway was narrow, straight, and ended a few yards away at another door. That door opened easily onto another stairway. What the hell? I said. Nobody had ever mentioned a sub-basement for this building. The hairs on the back of my neck were still standing out. I shook it off his nerves from the blown bulb and walked into the stairwell. It was a standard stairwell and looked pretty much the same as the others in the building. I walked to the bottom and met another door. I pushed through it to see another long, narrow hallway with doors leading off to either side at regular intervals. The first door to my left was unlocked and opened fairly easily onto a storage closet. There were stacks of late 60s era books, a few desks, and a decaying mop in its bucket. The door across from it was unlocked, but did not open so easily. I hauled the door open to find a larger room that looked to have been used as a classroom. There were desks, a blackboard, anatomical diagrams, and posters on the walls. Everything was covered in an inch of dust and appeared to have not been touched in a long time. Why would anyone put a classroom down here? I mumbled to myself. How would they even convince students to get down here in the first place? I remember thinking, at that point, that I must somehow discover a back way into the other wing of the V-shaped Downing Hall. Maybe this is where the old science classes were held before the labs were built. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I moved on to the next set of rooms. They were both classrooms, abandoned, dust-covered, and mostly empty. So were the next pair and the next. I saw a total of 12 disused classrooms in that hallway, and a small break room complete with a lonely coffee pot. I also found two small restrooms. I didn't spend much time checking them out, as the lights didn't work and I didn't feel like replacing those bulbs. I found myself getting slightly nervous. I was in a strange section of the campus, and I was working alone that night. In the back of my mind, I just couldn't truly justify the existence, the waste, of a whole floor full of unused classrooms. When I got to the end of the hallway, I met another steel door. I opened it and saw another stairwell. I was fully expecting the stairwell to go up, 
to connect to one of the other main stairwells in Downing Hall. The stairs only went down. This was the point, I remember, at which I began to get scared. No way. There's no way these stairs go down. How would anybody get down here? Here, here, here. The stairwell echoed at me. I should have checked the time. I should have been concerned with finishing my rounds. I should have been hungry for lunch and I should have run. I started to climb down the stairs. The stairwell was unlit and appeared to be much older and in much worse condition than the others. It was also longer, much longer. After a few minutes of walking down the steps, I began to count them. At every twelve steps, there was a small landing, a turn, and another set of steps. Down. After ten landings, I reached another door. It was unlocked and opened easily. The hinges squealed and the echoes died like lost things in the dark. I groped against the left wall for a light switch and there was none. I checked the right and the wall was equally smooth. I cast the flashlight around but saw nothing. Nothing forward, nothing to either side and nothing above. I snapped my fingers, listening for the echo. I may or may not have heard one. I slowly came to realize that the room into which I had entered was enormous, cavernous, possibly the biggest room I had ever physically experienced. I shrank back to the doorway for a moment. This room can't be here, I said to myself. I started to think about going back, but I also started to think about wanting to know what was in there. I took a step forward, and another, until I was walking steadily into the room. I kept a steady pace, counting my steps. I looked over my shoulder every few yards, using the light from the open doorway to orient myself. I walked slowly, for a hundred yards, two hundred yards, until I saw a dim glow ahead. The glow got faintly brighter and larger as I walked toward it. Another hundred yards and another and three more passed until I could make out a small dim light bulb near a door. That door was of a different type entirely. It was huge, fourteen feet tall at least and half again as wide. The surface was black metal studded with rivets and bolts, mounted on huge hinges. Across the face of the door, graved into the metal, were words in some strange lupin script that I could not recognize. Every surface was carved with that script, or with strange diagrams made of splayed circle-ended lines. 
In the center of the door was a large spoked wheel lock, and in the center of the lock was a tiny keyhole. Above the keyhole was a sigil, enclosed in three circles. I looked behind me and could not see the light from the stairwell. In fact, I couldn't see anything at all. I held the superhero keychain to the dim light and flipped through the keys. Of course, there was one small, battered key that looked as if it might fit. I inserted it into the lock and turned it. I heard a click and a thud and a sound from within the door like pouring pebbles or dry teeth. I pulled the key from the lock and grasped the spokes of the wheel lock. My heart was racing and sweat was dribbling into my eyes. I turned the spokes to the left counterclockwise. Wider shins, some buried memory in my head said and kept turning until the wheel stopped. There was another thud, and a crack, and then silence. The darkness behind me no longer felt empty. In fact, it felt positively crowded, as if I had an audience watching me. I stepped back from the door and flashed my light around. Still nothing. Dry, empty floor. I turned back to the door, grasping the large cast iron handles and pulled. Nothing. I tried harder, putting all my weight into the pole, and at the last moment, at the end of my strength, I heard another crack, and the door groaned open on a draft of cool, stinking air. The smell was heavy, moist, and musky. I had a flash memory of my mother taking me to the zoo as a child and the smell of the cat house with the lions. At the thought of the lions, I let go of the handles and stumbled back a bit. I carefully shone my light into the yawning black crevasse of the open door. I saw a short hallway that opened into a small cramped room. I saw a filthy, rusted metal chair. I saw bones, small bones. I saw, or heard, or smelled, a form so black it seemed to suck in the light of my flashlight. I saw a black form rushing toward me, running towards me, filling the hallway, howling and laughing and speaking in a voice that sounded like mountains collapsing. I remember fangs and words that turned my bones to rusted glass. I remember feathers and a hand with too many fingers, jeweled with something unspeakable, and the smell, the stink of something long caged. I remember wings. I don't know how long I wandered in the dark, alone under hundreds of feet of rock. There was no light. There was no way to judge time. My flashlight was dead. And my cell phone. And even the small specks of luminescent paint on my cheap wristwatch were dark. 
there was something wrong with my right leg. It hurt, but I couldn't see enough to find out why. I kept hearing my audience there in that cavernous room. I screamed at them. I felt one of them touch my face, and I threw my flashlight at it. The flashlight bounced and rattled and became still somewhere that I was not. Something laughed. Later. I raved and screamed but didn't throw anything else. I found the doorway after hours or days of crawling. There were no lights in the stairwell. After years of climbing, I crawled into that first forgotten hallway. I sliced my fingers on the crushed remains of the light bulbs I had packed in my satchel. I crawled down the hallway and reached the next stairwell. I hauled myself up them and finally out into the boiler room. When I staggered out of Downing Hall, two full days after going in, it was into dim winter daylight in a full police presence. Five people had been found dead on and around the campus. All had been brutally, now savagely, murdered, bodies splayed open, viscera missing. The teeth marks suggested a wild animal, but the murder scenes and body positioning also displayed a certain intelligence to them. There was also the writing, carved into the flesh when it was not yet dead meat. The cops wouldn't talk about the writing. The cops wouldn't talk to me either. Not afterwards. When they first saw me stumble out into the daylight covered in blood, they assumed I was the perpetrator. They quickly changed their assumptions when the medics pointed out that the green stick fracture, the dehydration, the concussion, and the obvious shock. The cops asked a lot of questions, and I answered as best I could. I told them about the door in the boiler room. They couldn't find it. They showed me the bare, smooth wall from where I had crawled, dazed and broken. My tracks stopped at that wall. Two cops tried breaking through the wall in that spot, only to meet old brick and older earth past that. The cops wanted to know where the long black feathers came from, stuck to my clothes, by dried blood. I didn't know. I didn't want to know. The cops, the medics, nobody would look at me anymore. The scars on my face, the deep, gouged-out writing, was not a sight that most would want to see. I was marked. Whatever I had let out, whatever had killed and eaten five people, and a week later six more, had marked me as a friend.
There are some stories that should never be told, tales that should never see the light or reach the eyes of the weak-hearted, innocent, frail. I relate this to you only in the hopes of protecting others from the same fate my friends fell to. College, supposed to be fun and interesting, a time of growing friendships and budding relationships and coming into our own, at least that's what I expected. The year started out so calmly, or as calm as one might expect the transition from high school to college can be. I managed to meet some wonderful friends, together comprising a group of seven. Seven silly, fun-loving, closely connected students drawn together. I remember the night everything began all too clearly. I can remember Miranda, Hannah, Shane, and I were eating at the Quidoba, a common last resort eating place when the cafeteria was crowded or closed. Miranda and I are quite similar in nature, introverted and shy, and your typical rule followers. Hannah has a bit more outgoing often prone to making those startlingly smooth sexual jokes and not as much as a goody-two-shoes as Miranda and I tended to be. Shane was that influential friend who is aggravatedly adept at getting you to do what he wants, be it good or bad. We were eating dinner, laughing, and talking about Shane's excursions into an abandoned and closed-off insane asylum. He was relating tales of the experience and sharing pictures and videos of the demolished architecture. We started talking about the tunnels that ran underneath the old, worn-down amphitheater, which sat empty and forgotten behind the building which housed the math department. I remembered sitting on the stone seats earlier that year in a class meeting with the professor. There had been such a strange atmosphere surrounding the amphitheater then, and it sent a chill down my spine. Shane mentioned how one of his friends, Dan, had delved into the tunnels earlier in the year, boasting about it as if it were a rite of passage. We laughed, and trying to be brave and fearless, I claimed I could easily sneak down there without a problem. I ended up making a promise that would change my life forever. It was late one spring night, and I was spending the evening in Shane's dorm room alongside Sean and Megan and Alexis. Sean was the loyal brother bear of the group, one of the most supportive guys you'd ever meet. Megan was incredibly smart, a hard worker, and with a soul too pure for this world. Alexis was silly and classy, with a laugh that always managed to bring up the rest of the group to stitches. Somehow, the conversation circled around to the tunnels once more. Shane told everyone else about Dan, and once again, I was confronted with the challenge to break into them. Had I known what I know now, I never would have agreed. I never would have laughed and pretended that I didn't have misgivings. It'd be fun, Shane said, adopting that smile that always managed to convince us. 
Yeah, I think it'd be pretty cool, I quickly added. Wouldn't it be awesome to see what's down there? The answer to that question is no. If only I had known it at the time. I don't think it's a good idea, Megan said, looking between Shan and I. I shared her mindset, but wasn't about to back down from my previous stance. As long as I'm not going alone, I'll be fine, I said, trying to lighten the conversation. And who the hell is going to go with you? Alexis interrupted, giving me an incredulous look. I laughed, trying to act like I wasn't that concerned. Okay, okay, alone then. But at least I'll have my flashlight taser on me. If anything tries to jump me, I'll tase it to death, I said with a chuckle. And while the others joined in my laughter, I could tell it wasn't entirely genuine. Everyone had an uneasy feeling about the situation, perhaps aside from Shane, who had gone on such an adventure once before. This wasn't to say they were scared. Dan had done it before and there was no reason to be so worried, but the idea was still unsettling. Alright, so when are we going to do this? Shane asked, returning his attention to me. Might as well get it done and over with, I said with a sigh, and while the weather is warm. This weekend? Shane suggested. I was taken aback, and my heart leaped for a moment. Whether from excitement or dread, I cannot tell. Uh, works for me as long as you guys don't leave me down there, Shane joked. I still don't think we should, Megan said quietly, though she was drowned out by my own affirmation of the suggested time. We settled upon Saturday night, when the campus police would be too busy monitoring rooms for alcohol and drug use, watching for party-goers who might have broken the law, and patrolling for any issues along campus walk. When night had fallen, we met in my dorm and snuck out a back entrance slipping through the darkness to the amphitheater. We came upon the entrance to the tunnels, a heavy metal door that was thoroughly rusted and held shut by an old metal lock. It was easy enough to open, and before long, we were looking through the door into a long, dark hallway. Cold air wafted from the tunnels, bringing a strong odor of musty, moldy, decay. Oh my god, Alexis gagged and turned away from the door. My reservations became exceedingly clear. I can't do this, I stated, taking a step back from the door hanging open. Nah, come on, Shane said, looking back to the tunnel. Dan already did this, it's fine. At that moment, a raccoon dashed from the tunnels and passed us, startling me. I let out a shout, scared by the sudden appearance of the creature. <laughs> Seriously, Mary? Sean said with a good-natured laugh. I'm jumpy, I exclaimed, blushing red with embarrassment. I didn't mention it at the time, but I had seen more than a raccoon run in front of us. It hadn't been the raccoon that had startled me. There had been two shadows. One had been significantly larger, much too large to be a raccoon. 
I tried to convince myself it had only been a mother and a baby. The hairs on the back of my neck still stood on end. Come on, just a few minutes and that's all, Shane begged, handed me my flashlight. I clasped it in my hands, trying not to show how shaky they were. Alright, we'll be waiting for you out here, Miranda said, giving me a hug. I swallowed hard and nodded, afraid my voice would crack in fear if I tried to respond. I took a step toward the door, then another. My heart beat faster in my chest. The air was pungent. The batteries of my flashlight were low, and the resulting light was dangerously dim. Have you ever seen a horror movie and cringed at the stupidity of the main characters? I can remember constantly telling them not to do this, not to do that, aggravated and annoyed that they were making such basic and childish mistakes. Funny, how when you're in a situation like that, you never listen to your own instincts. Images of horrible creatures flooded my mind, but I pushed them all back. What's the worst that I could run into? Spiders? I'm not afraid of those. Oh, how I wish I had been. I hesitantly entered the cavern. It was dark and damp, and as you might expect, a decades-old tunnel to feel. But there was something off, something unnatural hung in the air. And I don't mean ghostly and supernatural. There was a strong sense of dread that washed over me. But just as every horror protagonist ever, I kept going. I ignored my instincts. I walked several hundred feet through until I came to a split, one to the left and one to the right. I quickly checked down both halls with my flashlight, half expecting to see some hideous nightmare creature looming from the darkness. Of course, I saw nothing. Both sides were equally unnerving, so I opted to move toward the left. It felt a little warmer in the left passage, and I came upon another branching path shortly. I turned left again, hoping I would be able to remember the way back. The air grew warmer. Geothermal energy? I thought to myself, trying to comprehend the sudden change in temperature, when suddenly there was a sickening crack beneath my feet. I turned my flashlight down and jumped back when I saw what I had stepped upon. There was a corpse of a rat, but it was unlike any corpse I had ever seen. Part of the bones were showing, where flesh had been dissolved off of them and left stark white. Other pieces were almost mummified, as if the natural decomposition process had been halted. The intestines were spilling out of a gash in the creature's stomach, as if it were a fresh wound. My breathing halted, and I began to feel overwhelmingly claustrophobic. I fought against the nausea that suddenly churned my stomach. That wasn't natural. Nothing about these tunnels was natural. 
Why was the pungent odor getting much stronger? Why did the air seem to be getting warmer? I raised my flashlight and froze. I don't remember if I was breathing or not. All I could think about was what had just been illuminated. There was a creature hunched down before me, maybe the size of a medium dog or a fox or something like that. To say it looked humanoid would be not quite accurate. Its posture resembled a hunched over kid, but its head was a little too big for the body below it. Its eyes bugged out of its skull, taking up at least one third of the head itself. There was no color to them, only dark black and an opaque bluish covering. Long fangs extended from its mouth, but it lacked the lower jaw. A curled up tongue, similar to a proboscis of a butterfly, curled behind the fangs, hanging openly in the air. The claws that extended from its thick, thin limbs curved against the damp concrete beneath us. Every bone seemed close to protruding from the creature's skin, which was a sickly green color, as if it, too, were caught between decomposition and mummification. I couldn't move. Slowly, the creature turned its head to face me, leaning forward. The tongue uncurled and swept across the floor, as if searching for a scent or abnormality. Creaking like the sound of a door, emanated through the tunnel as it moved toward me, slowly and methodically. Its claws twitched slightly as it moved, the unlitting eyes pulsing. I was petrified, and I couldn't breathe. My entire being trembled in fear, but my brain seemed incapable of transmitting the signal to move. The adrenaline that rushed through my body couldn't force me to turn and run. The taser upon my flashlight was long forgotten. As it neared, the air grew increasingly warmer, as if inside the creature a small inferno was roaring. The rotten, decaying scent of death loomed closer, and suddenly... My brain fixed the broken signal, and my body leapt into action. I turned on my heels and ran, throwing all caution to the wind. A screech echoed behind me, unearthly and ungodly, dying away into sounds eerily similar to the popping and cracking of a fire. I turned a corner, hearing the sound of something splattering against the wall beside me. There was a hissing noise, like gas being released from a tire, and my feet moved even faster. I turned a corner and saw the faint moonlight of the doorway, so much further than I had hoped. I dashed for the exit, calling out to Miranda, to Sean, to whoever was waiting for me outside. My brain didn't comprehend the fact that by running toward the exit, I was luring the creature to the people. I cared about most. It didn't occur to me that the tunnels had been locked up for a reason other than 
trespassing college students. It had been bolted, behind great iron doors, to keep whatever that thing was locked away. And I released it. Run was the only thing I remember shouting. I recall the confusion on their faces as they shone their flashlights through the tunnels, the recognition as they saw me, and the dread as they laid eyes upon the nightmare behind me. They scattered, though I didn't see Megan, Hannah, or Alexis. I only fleetingly considered that they had left early. I glanced behind me, as foolish people always do, to see if it was still chasing me. The creature had paused, clicking and creaking at the doorway. I slowed, wondering if it couldn't cross the threshold. Then I saw the others. There was more than one. A whole colony of those things hiding away beneath our very school unearthed by nobody other than me. Sean, Miranda, and Shane found me, pulling on my arms and yelling at me to move, to get out of there, but I was petrified again with all those giant black orbs trained on me. I was pulled back slowly toward my dorm when something crunched beneath my feet. I looked down. Megan's glasses. No, 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 no. I began to cry, feverish nonsense spilling from my lips. Miranda froze, staring down at the abandoned frames and broken lenses. No word could be spoken by anyone. Only Sean's pushing moved us from our paralysis, and by then the creatures had begun to spill out into the surrounding area. They paced a decent distance from us, back and forth like panthers about the lunge. Their movements jarred and shuddered, perhaps due to the sickening disproportion of their limbs. The hind legs were severely shortened, and the arms, including the claws at the end, were at least twice their size. We ran, and we ran as fast as we possibly could, but we couldn't beat them. I used to roll my eyes at the hero who sacrificed themselves for the rest of the group, who, in a situation like that, would know they all couldn't escape. How could they discern the danger so quickly and definitively? And who would be crazy enough to sacrifice themselves and embrace death? How foolish I was. Sean. Sean fought them off. He knew we all wouldn't be able to make it, yet Sean, loyal, protective Sean, turned toward the creatures and charged. I think I called his name. I can't remember. I was a coward. I didn't go back for him. I tried to make myself feel better by reasoning that his sacrifice was to give us more time to escape. That his death wasn't in vain. They swarmed him. 
I could tell that much from the sounds that assaulted my ears. I ran and ran, stumbling over everything I came across in my fervor. Then, I almost tripped over something that made me stop dead in my tracks. There was a body, unrecognizable, half bone and half mummified flesh, surrounded by a pool of dark red liquid. An overwhelming stench lingered in the air, and I gagged. I heard the screeching again, echoing in my ears, and I heard Miranda shout Shane's name. I dared to look back and saw her a couple of feet behind me, watching in horror as the terrible scene unfolded. It's too difficult to describe what happened. My mind still cannot firmly grasp the reality of it, the sheer brutality of it. But I must mention the few important things I learned about these creatures. They possess an acid like venom they can shoot from their fangs that dissolves flesh into a soupy mess. Their tongues serve as straws to suck up the liquid left behind by the venom. And their body, with the heat it emanates, is used to keep untouched the flesh undissolved and free of decay. Sheer panic overwhelmed me. I grabbed Miranda's arm and dragged her along behind me. My dorm wasn't that far from the amphitheater, but it felt like miles. Clicking and creaking and howling and screeching echoed around us, though not as unanimous as before, as if several of them had fallen back. Their cries chased after us. We didn't stop until we had taken refuge behind the doors to my dorm. Miranda collapsed to the ground, breaking down into sobs and incomprehensible cries. I peered through the window of the door, attempting to catch my breath and fighting back the weariness that accompanied the fading adrenaline. They had stopped a couple feet back from the lights that illuminated the entryway, moving forward only to leap back with loud screams. Their eyes shrank noticeably when they came in contact with the harsh light and the creatures began shaking their heads violently. I kept watching until, with shrill shrieks, they gave up and faded away into the darkness. Their shuddering bodies melted into blackness. Someone discovered the bodies the next day. There was a fair amount of noise and concern created by the incident, but I avoided the scene as best I could. I texted every one of my friends in the vain hope that it had all been a dream. No answers. I beat upon their doors, sobbing, trying to awaken them. It was no use. They were gone and never to return. The police only barely recognized the bodies. Hannah and Alexis had been identified by Fingerprints left upon the items they carried. Sean and Shane, well, I saw what happened to them. Megan was nowhere to be found, though her shattered glasses answers that question well enough. After that incident, I refused to be outside after dark, especially once the disappearances began. 
Students would vanish for several days, only to be found in remote places on and off campus, their bodies torn and dissolved, just as, just as my friends had been. They radiated outwards. Soon, the citizens of the town began to fall prey to those horrendous creatures. Police, after the incidents began to accumulate, began calling for the arrest and capture of somebody carrying knives and acid, or some other type of corrosive bioweapon. They'll never find the criminal. There's none to find. I know. Miranda knows. We are the only ones. Those creatures cannot be stopped. They have been trapped, contained, and now no longer. They're free to prey upon the human populations they come in contact with, and at the rate they're spreading. Huh. I transferred once the semester was over. I moved to the college in my hometown, and Miranda followed me. Neither of us wanted to remain on that cursed campus in that forsaken town. I share the story in hopes that helpless lives might be saved. Even if I must face the consequences of that terrible night, I beg of you, hear my plea. Don't go out at night. Don't travel without something to protect yourself, and please, if you hear creaking or cracking, if you feel a temperature change, no matter how subtle, run. Run for your life. The autumn leaves were orange and red, and danced in the cool breeze as the sun quickly disappeared under cloud cover. The days were getting shorter and shorter, and I knew in time that winter would set in, and I would have to spend most of my time indoors. I hated spending all my time inside, all winter, and I wanted to get out and do things. I mean, really, just anything. So, high school just let out for fall break, and I never had anything to do over the breaks that we had, but I had an idea of what to do over break this time. I decided that I was going to go to this abandoned shack that I had come across while hiking in the woods one day. The shack, while not completely dilapidated, was still left to abandon. It was surrounded by bushes and trees and all sort of ivy crawled up the outside walls. Luckily for me, it was only a few mile hike from my house into the woods. I wanted to go in and explore the day I had found it, but I wasn't prepared. Plus, my mom called and said to get home because it was almost time for dinner. After I had dinner, I decided I was going to lie and tell my mom I was going to go to a friend's house for the night 
and I grabbed my stuff and headed out the door. Now, I guess I didn't have to do this in hindsight, but I knew it was going to be a tough hike in the woods, and it would probably take a few hours. Come to think of it, I was feeling really good and confident that night, so hiking in the woods at night alone didn't cross my mind as a bad thing. I mean, really, what could happen? So, there I was, walking into the woods, beside my house in the direction of the shack. Now, the shack was a few miles into the woods. It would be a while before I would get there. I got my phone and earbuds out of the bag that I had brought with me. I plugged my headphones in, went to my playlist, and selected the song My World by the Sick Puppies. And I just started singing along as I was walking. And after a few songs later, I was on a deer trail that I sometimes use when I was in these woods, and dark trees hung over my head, and a light flicker of lightning danced in between the falling autumn leaves. It was about to rain. As I took my earbuds out of my ears, the wind started to pick up, stripping the trees of more blood-red leaves. A few more minutes later, the wind died down, and a light drizzle started to fall from the sky. I was still in a good mood, however. Nothing was going to stop me from going on an adventure. Surprisingly, the rest of the walk was relatively relaxing. The rain stopped, and it turned into a calm evening. A few steps after looking at my phone's Google Map app, I heard an unusual cry. A shrill screeching that sounded similar to that of a fox. However, it had a baritone undertone to it, so I knew instantly it wasn't one. A little while later, I saw the tire that I saw when I first came across the shack, so I knew I was close. A few minutes passed, and I found an old gravel trail that was probably used as some sort of walkway when the house was lived in years ago. From there, the abandoned house came into view. I held up my mag light to the ancient structure. Ah, just as I remembered it. Gray walls covered with dying ivy, a rusting tin roof, and warped glass windows. I walked up to the door, and I knocked first just in case even though I knew it was vacant. I got no answer, so I grabbed the knob, slammed my body into the door to bust it open, and the wood was so old and rotted that it wasn't hard to break open, and I just walked in. The place looked like it hadn't been touched in years, and I began looking around it. There was a stove in the kitchen, and a couch in the living room, and three other rooms. There appeared to be decayed food on the floor of the kitchen, and the smell just made me want to vomit, but I continued looking. I heard the sound of a twig breaking, but I brushed it off, thinking it was probably just an animal or that maybe I just stepped on something. So, I went into one of the three other rooms. 
It was a bedroom, and it was rather well maintained. The bed and closet were still there. The doors of the closet were still intact, although they had cracks in them. The house was surprisingly kept well on the inside. Maybe the decay of the outside hadn't touched the inside after all these years. It did smell really bad though, like an animal carcass on the side of the road, that moldy, earthy, mineral smell. Not that I go around smelling animal carcasses or anything, but there was this one time. Anyway, I digress. There was one thing that surprised me about the bedroom. There was a faded stain on the floor, and at the time I thought, well, this shack is old so the roof probably leaks when it rains, so it was probably just a water stain, and the rust from the roof probably just stained it red. Just when I had that thought, I heard something walk into the house. I thought it was probably just another animal. But then, I heard a faint cough. I knew instantly, right then and there, that it was a person. I freaked out, and quietly got into the closet, and gently closed the door. There was a horrible smell in the closet. I looked down, searching for the cause of the smell. There was a dead deer with its head cut off. And I really couldn't tell at the time, but something else was attached to it. I was stuck in there, and the silence was almost unbearable. It was so quiet that I could hear maggots writhing in the belly of the deer. I tried to keep calm and swallow the vomit that made its way into my throat, and that's when I heard the footsteps. It sounded like they weren't too far from the room that I was in. Whatever it was, was dragging something heavy, and I could tell that they were struggling by the way they were breathing and heaving. The footsteps and dragging noises finally came to a stop, only a few feet outside of the closet that I was hiding in. I heard it moan and heaved something onto the bed. The bed creaked with the weight placed on it. It took a little time, but I found a crack in the closet door, and I peeked through it to witness what I assumed was a body, but I couldn't really tell. It looked like human flesh with hair, but it was all mangled and distorted. It finally opened a hole right next to a hair patch, and let out the same scream that I heard in the woods earlier. I gasped when I got to finally see the man next to this gelatinous, flesh creature. He was a huge monstrosity of a man, with patches of hair missing from his head and a gigantic knife in his hand. He slowly raised the knife to his other arm, and cut himself deep, screaming in agony as he did so. He raised his bleeding arm and flexed, 
blood squirting at the screeching mass of flesh on the bed. And suddenly, a blue veiny tongue stuck out of the creature on the bed, and it started to lick up the blood. The man that was standing beside the creature eventually collapsed. And that's when I decided to run out of there. I ran past the passed out man on the ground, not even bothering to look at the grotesque creature on the bed. I slammed through the front door and down the gravel path as fast as I have ever ran in my entire life. I eventually made it home running almost the entire time. I had marks and scratches on my face and hands where twigs and bushes hit me on the run back. And out of breath, I opened the back door to my house. And to my surprise, the police were sitting in the kitchen, talking with my mother. Apparently, my mom called my friend's house after trying to get a hold of me on my cell phone. My friend basically ratted me out, saying I wasn't with her. And my mom got really worried and called the police. I told them about the shack that I ventured out to, and they went out to check it. They found the shack, and they searched it, but they didn't find the man on the floor, or any creature or anything on the bed. They did find, however, a large amount of blood on the bed and a decaying deer corpse with a human head attached to it in the closet. They spent weeks at that shack in the woods behind my house, recovering 15 bodies altogether. They were everywhere in the rooms I didn't go into. They were in the walls. They were even under the floorboards. But all those bodies didn't scare me one bit, and Perhaps I'm a bit of a psychopath for not being scared. Or perhaps I'm scared of that flesh monster and its blood bag still roaming the woods behind my house. <laughs>